Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Our last podcast was on how local journalism has changed and how newspapers, online sites, and broadcasters are responding. Well, this podcast looks more at national media and also how newsrooms very often are not in touch with many of the people they serve. We speak with Nikki Usher about power politics, inequality, and journalism and the changing digital landscape for media. People who have always been the kind to be informed and interested in journalism and have the time and luxury to care about the civic mission of a place that they live, um, those have always been the primary readers of news and information. And that's really my worry, is this increasing inequality between the news haves and the news have-nots. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? For decades, the polling firm Gallup has been asking Americans this question. How much confidence and trust do you have in the news media? Back in the 1970s, more than two-thirds of the public said they had a great deal, or at least a fair amount of confidence. Now the proportion is down to one-third. Most Americans distrust what they see or hear from news outlets. We ask not only how to fix it, but, but how are journalists like you and me to get a better understanding of why so many people think we tell lies or at least uh, don't care about the truth? Our guest is communications professor Nikki Usher of the University of San Diego, the author of the book News for the Rich, White, and Blue, How Place and Power Distort American Journalism. Nikki spoke with us recently from San Diego. You say that many of the news industry's wounds are self-inflicted. Can you explain? The news industry often likes to blame everyone else, like blame Facebook, blame loss of trust, blame Craigslist. But there are some things that are both short-sighted and long-sighted in in terms of mistakes that the news industry has made. I think probably the first one is that newspapers in particular got used to being the principal attention market and attention broker for large cities and small cities alike without digital competition. So in many markets, local newspapers were really monopolies. They were. They were. And they were inefficient monopolies, right? At a certain point, there was one newspaper that was kind of 
maybe a second newspaper. Often they were the same company. And there was really one central place for everybody in a location to get all of the advertising. So I think that's number one, sort of a false sense of security due to an inefficient monopoly. And the second thing is really not matching or mirroring the communities that they served. Um, as the composition of cities has changed, the composition of newsrooms has not. And I think that going forward, this is a reckoning that mainstream American newspapers in particular, but all news organizations really need to be thinking about. In your work, you really stress the importance of place, of a sense of place. And that one element of that could be the composition of the newsroom and having a organization that reflects the community, but also an awareness of the the particulars of a certain region in a way they're we're getting our news from farther away. We're getting news that's more more nationalized. We talk a lot about news and democracy, but we don't talk a lot about news as like a fabric that knits culture together. So for me, when I think of um, news, it's more than just about information. It's about like turning to my favorite sports columnist or reading about kids in the high school newspaper. While newspapers in particular haven't always covered certain communities particularly well, um, they have given you a sense of like, what does it feel like to live in Philadelphia? What does it feel like to live in Chicago? Being intimately concerned with the contours of a particular place and its specific culture and geography. You say that in, in the case of many newspapers and also local TV and radio, that while the demographics, the composition of the population um, have changed in many communities, many cities, um, newsrooms haven't. Can you give us an example of that? Yeah, I think my favorite actually is the LA Times, which has been doing um, an incredible reckoning with its own historical legacy of racism, everything from the Zoot Suit riots to supporting the concentration camps during World War II for Japanese Americans, to more recently kind of characterizing the rise of Asian Americans in the San Gabriel Valley as sort of an invasion. And this is, we're talking about a characterization that happened within the past you know, five years. This is a newsroom that is 13% Latino, and you're in a city that's um, majority minority at this point. So I think LA is a really good example. I think Philadelphia is a good example. Um, they've stumbled a number of times in the Philadelphia Inquirer. An example I give in my book is right after George Floyd, they had a section uh, that led with buildings matter too, which is just so fundamentally out of touch with what had happened a week or two prior. You worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer early in your career. Uh, tell us a little bit about what got you interested in journalism and, and, and what you learned in those early experiences reporting in the field. Oh my gosh, give me a second here. <laughs> you know, I think the thing that's so exciting about journalism is what you get to do each day is always different, that you get to be connected to all sorts of different people you would otherwise never meet. And you get to have this intimate knowledge about whatever it is that you cover and you become a true expert. And there's something really emboldening about being able to share that expertise and continue to develop that with people who just simply don't have the time to do what you're literally hired to do. And I think for me, that's what I found most exciting. And I never wanted to be in DC. I wanted to be kind of in the guts of a big city 
my dream job for a while had been to be in New Orleans or Las Vegas, like covering spectacular crimes. I, th- I think Jim and I got the news bug a lot earlier. I know I, I, I delivered Newsday on Long Island when I was 12 years old and found that very exciting to to see a huge front page headline about something that had happened that morning, like like a space launch at 8 a.m. And here I was at 3 p.m. after school uh, delivering this evening newspaper. What about you, Jim? Yeah, I was also a uh, a newspaper <laughs> delivery boy. It's so funny now. You know, we've done a lot of podcasts on uh, this idea of free range kids. Oh, my gosh. They would hand these big bags of newspapers to like 12 and 13-year-old kids, and we'd go running around the neighborhood on our bikes, and then we'd have to go door-to-door collecting money. It's just so hard to imagine that happening today. In, in a sense, we were, was probably exploiting child labor. But I was able to earn money to buy a lot of model rockets and other geeky things. But so those those kind of papers that we deliver, those mid-size local or regional papers, they were a big part of the media landscape, and a lot of those have disappeared and instead, people who read newspapers every day, a lot of them read in, uh, what's essentially a national newspaper, you know, the New York Times, the, the, the Washington Post. How has that changed the media landscape for people? What does it mean that we're looking at the world through a more national and less local frame? Yeah, I think once news went online, you delocalized the importance of the reader where the reader was you never delocalize the importance of where things actually happen, which was their immediate environment. People don't talk about this kind of polarization, but nationalization of attention is also a form of polarization. When you shift away your attention as a news consumer and as a country to what happens in DC or what happens to the nation as a whole, that itself is a form of of polarization. And in turn, what happens is that focus on particularly politics at the national level, those become the known individuals and really set the tone for everything else that happens back at home. And so people increasingly, and politicians as well, take their cues from national parties, not from the parties that are actually, and the politics that are actually locally situated, both in a community, but also at the state level. It's easy to forget today that newspapers, to a considerable extent, were a blue-collar medium. My news editor at the radio station, the first radio station where I worked, uh, who taught me how to write for broadcast news as opposed to writing for print, never went to college. And he was a huge influence on me. Most reporters generations ago didn't go to college. But now you say journalism is both an elite occupation and it aims at an an elite audience. How did that happen? I mean, I think it's the professionalization of journalism as a whole alongside the professionalization and specialization of many other occupations. Blue-collar jobs shifted in significance and importance and stature. And as we move to an information economy covering those information workers from the perspective of people who live and were trained in the information economy, I think really is part of a larger cultural change and story of the United States. And increasingly, as times became tough for news organizations, we're talking about a decline in circulation that begins 50 years ago, not something that happened in 2008. And 
marketing to working class people who don't have the same purchasing power as, you know, a trader on Wall Street starts to shift the conversation um, in journalism and starts to shift the kind of people that end up working in news. And moreover, when you have journalism as a job where um, it is fragile, right, people do get laid off. The incentive for students who don't have a backup plan to go into journalism really declines. If somebody's from a marginalized background and has managed to get the education that, you know, that could lead to a top level journalism job, can you blame them for not wanting that job? I don't blame people for wanting to go into something more lucrative. Uh, what draws your students to it? Uh, we tend to blame the pipeline for the lack of diversity in pretty much any occupation. And the reality is the pipeline is strong. The University of San Diego, where I work, has its first freshman class, first year class, that is um, majority minority, majority historically underrepresented groups. Certainly not the only place in the country to do that. It's not the fault of underproduction. I think often when students um, get to these newsrooms, they find themselves as treated as a token or a cute thing, or they find that the person two to three generations ahead of them has an idea of objectivity that doesn't square with actual reality. When journalists, especially journalists from historically marginalized groups, enter into what ultimately becomes hostile territory, they're not staying. Journalism has had these tremendous diversity issues for since the 60s. We've been trying to fix these. And newsrooms remain fundamentally white institutions with white people in positions of power. And that's not going to be fixed until we have a major reckoning with the fact that that is a way that social and structural racism ends up being perpetuated. We're speaking with communications professor Nikki Usher. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Richard Davies. Our podcast is part of the Democracy Group, which is a network of podcasters who are dedicated to engaging in civil discourse, inspiring civic engagement, and also exploring the future of democracy. Find all the podcasts in this family at democracygroup.org. Now, more from our conversation with Nikki Usher. Let's talk about a few solutions. First, how can local and regional news outlets regain the trust of citizens who 
have never trusted them in the first place. I'm not sure they're the best institutions to do so. I think that we might need to really radically rethink how we do the function of journalism, and that might not be a newspaper. And we're starting to see really interesting examples come out. Uh, I think Chicago is doing some really interesting stuff with City Bureau that's now spread, where people are like hired to go to public meetings, acknowledging that journalists can't do that. And that's a community-based, uh, community-driven journalism. There are efforts to do journalism over text message and WhatsApp and really interesting innovations that are happening to new immigrant communities, particularly Latino communities, um, Latinx communities in the United States that's happening over text message. And so I'm not sure that newsrooms, as they are con- traditionally constituted, are going to necessarily be able to make up that trust gap. I'm not sure they're the right institutions to cover those communities either. That may indicate that that instead of news being centrally organized in a newsroom, that it's more of a conversation among people who work or live in a specific community. Is, is that Well, true? I think there's still a place for professional journalism. I absolutely do. I just think that the mechanism through which it's delivered and the way that it is reported and originated is going to have to change to make sure that we have more equity in the people who are getting covered and for whom the news is for. I think that regional, like the big name newspapers, um, it will be interesting to see what happens as a generation that has been a loyal subscriber starts to really unsubscribe in mass. And I do worry because there are all these sort of news startups that are nonprofit and digital first that are doing amazing accountability. I think that that is really going to end up serving as a check on power in many studies in America. But my students hadn't heard of the voice of San Diego. And these are, you know, students that grew up often in this region and they've never heard of it. And I don't know what to say. Do we have a democracy where elites are checking other elites and everybody else doesn't know what's going on? Um, And I think that may be where we're headed. What is the voice of San Diego? But the voice of San Diego is a really good example of a local news nonprofit. And so this was one of the early models, actually, of how nonprofit, especially nonprofit accountability journalism, can happen. And I think the fact that it's been around since 2005 gives you a sense of its potential for longevity. However, when you are a digital first nonprofit, you are depending on a certain kind of readership to help contribute certain types of foundations to help contribute. And so you've got incredible journalism. um, And hopefully that helps every other local television station and maybe even the local newspaper itself. Maybe that becomes the the heart of the newspaper ecology when it comes, or the news ecology when it comes to accountability journalism in a place. But as far as that organization itself communicating with a broader reach of residents directly, we know that's not happening. The brand recognition isn't there. What we have in Connecticut, the Connecticut Mirror, which is a wonderful nonprofit publication that covers public policy issues, but it doesn't cover the high school football game. It doesn't mm-hmm. cover the stuff that is of everyday people's lives. And so the audience for a nonprofit, very well-intentioned, well-reported, public service-oriented publication is limited. And so I, I think there are real, real questions about 
what accountability work needs to be done at the very local level and what um, community actors can replace with their own sort of storytelling now. And I think increasingly there's going to be a space for like the good citizen as the good communicator, as the person who takes the time to explain things to everybody else, but may not be a professional. There are also those people that are going to, you know, video on their GoPro every single softball pitch from pitch to pitch, right, of the, of the high school team. So these are examples of, of what you've called the unbundling of the functions of newspapers, right? Yes, I think that's right. And so the question is, what is it that journalists who are trained as journalists who, um, you know, want to really dig into issues of real civic importance, right? It's not that these community things aren't civically important, but there are some things that most people don't have the time to do. When we think about scarce resources, where do we direct the scarce resources of journalism? People who have always been the kind to be informed and interested in journalism and have the time and luxury to care about the civic mission of a place that they live. Um, those have always been the primary readers of news and information. But the reason I call my book News for the Rich, White, and Blue is that it really, really is becoming the best journalism that exists in a place is for people who generally tend to be white, who generally are liberal because liberals still believe in journalism and have the cultural or social capital to see news is important. And that's really my worry is this increasing inequality between the news haves and the news have nots. Thank you, Nikki Usher. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Nikki Usher, coming up next, as usual, our recommendation. What have you got for us this week, Richard? Well, last time, Jim, you recommended a podcast, so I thought, okay, I better, I better think about what I really like. And one of the shows I've been listening to and delighted by is something called Rumble Strip, which was created and produced by Erica Heilman. And uh, this is a show that's based in Vermont. Erica is both the host and the producer, and she invites herself into people's homes and, and, and simply starts recording. You'll hear from all kinds of people, soccer moms, criminals, waitresses, taxidermists. And the show that um, won the Peabody Award was called Finn and the Bell, and it was about the suicide of a young man in Vermont, and it was so beautifully told. You hear from his mother, you hear from uh, the local townsfolk in the community where uh, Finn lived and died, and you hear about his interests and his passions. It's, it's not just sad, it's also inspiring, and just like the podcast you recommended last time, this one is also beautifully produced. There's a wonderful use of sound. And Erica Heilman is the most engaging of podcast hosts. I love that about podcasts. They just take you into a, a world, you know, sometimes that is so intimate and something that you you really don't get from print. You get so many wonderful things from print journalism and from from television, but there's something about just going about your day with your headphones on, and yet you're somewhere else in your mind. Yeah. The show is called Rumble Strip. 
Okay, our conversation, Jim, uh, about the interview with, with Nikki Usher and some of the things it raised. One of the most interesting aspects to me is that so many newsrooms are homogenous uh, politically and also don't reflect the lifestyle of many of the people they serve. And that that's a real problem. And it's one I think that in many cases, uh, journalists are not really aware of. Oh, I think they're hyper aware of it, Richard. Are you kidding? I mean, at least the the ethnic diversity part, this has been an obsession in newsrooms for many years. I guess what I'm suggesting is that they're not always aware of the people they serve and how they're different from them. Maybe maybe I should put ah, it that way. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll agree with you about that. But one thing is there's the people they serve and the people that one might think they ought to serve. You know, I don't necessarily know if the New York Times is not connecting with a huge audience of lower-income readers. I don't think it has those readers. In fact, if anything, I think the New York Times is probably doing a pretty good job of satisfying the kind of ideological inclinations of a very affluent, uh, college-educated, very liberal community, especially since they, and, and Nikki touched on this, since they and other newspapers have moved away from an advertising funding model to a subscription model. When you're trying to keep your subscribers happy, boy, you, you, you don't want to give them too much stuff that annoys them. You don't want to give them too many opinions that, that challenge their preconceptions. Now, to the Times credit, they're making some efforts, you see, in the last six months or so to, to open up a little bit. It's also a business question. That's going to be a difficult knot to untie. You mentioned the term uh, subscription model. We should uh, point out, this was in our last episode, how advertising has hugely dropped off for newspapers in particular and has been replaced by uh, subscriptions very often as the main source of revenue. And and that's what you you mean by uh, the, the, the danger of that. You're right. I mean, you and I have subscriptions to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, other papers. You can't, the paywalls have become extensive enough that you really can't get that much out of those papers today if you're not willing to, to subscribe. What worries me about this model and others is, is I think a lot of people who are affluent enough and, and heavy news consumers are were okay with paying to subscribe to the New York Times. We're not going to subscribe to a whole array of smaller paper. So I wanted to ask you about something that you've turned me on to, uh, which is Substack. What is it, and and what kind of function is it serving that perhaps other outlets don't? Yeah, Substack is a really interesting solution to this problem of ideological conformity at elite outlets. So as people have often left or been driven out of of institutions like the New York Times. Some of them have landed at this really great platform. Basically, Substack is a combination of a, a newsletter platform, a, a home for podcasters, and a, a publishing platform that has a really easy-to-use model to get your 
supporters to subscribe and pay for your journalistic work. But Substack, at this so far at least, it's not going to replace the kind of shoe leather journalism that we've talked about on the last two episodes of this podcast, where you have people who aren't necessarily superstar media brand names, and they're going out and they're covering stories, you know, door to door. They're going to city council meetings or whatever it is that the important story is, and and doing the sort of unglamorous work that is the foundation of so much journalism. So far, a lot of what we see on Substack kind of falls in the realm of punditry or interesting column writing, and it does include reporting often, but it doesn't necessarily include the routine day-to-day reporting that good newspapers do. It's How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Thanks for joining us. Another show in two weeks. This is episode, I think, 383. So uh, we're really getting up there, Jim. (laughs) We've been at this for a long time. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and this is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Please check us out at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.